This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Listen in as Blackberry Mountain Wellness Manager Megan Henley chats with Chef Seamus Mullen. Chef Mullen shares his personal experience with food as medicine and how eating differently totally changed his ability to live with an autoimmune disease. The message of today's episode, changing your diet can change your life. Well, welcome, welcome. So glad to have everyone here today. And Seamus Mullen, um, award-winning chef, restaurateur, and um, cookbook author, most recently, Real Food Heals. Um, for some reason, I have a hard time saying that. <laughs> Real Food Heals. Um, so we're so excited to have you here at Blackberry. As we've um, previously discussed, um, Seamus's food philosophy fits so beautifully with ours, just fueling the body for lots of activity and um, healing through foods and connection with people in the kitchen and around the table. So fits really well with our um, philosophies here at Blackberry. So welcome, Seamus. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So just wanted to dive right in for those um, who did not know your story. I would love for you to just tell as little or as much as you'd like. Sure. Um, well, I'll give a really quick overview because I don't want to bore any of you too much. But I grew up on a small farm in Vermont, so I've been around good food pretty much my whole life. And uh, grew up cooking with both of my grandmothers. Um, we raised most of our own produce. And I never really thought of cooking as a skill that I, that I just assumed everyone knew how to cook. Cooking was just like splitting wood or, or uh, hauling water or, or you know, baling hay, driving a tractor when you're seven years old. Everybody knows how to do that. <laughs> so um, yeah, my, my worldview was pretty myopic at a young age, as it is for most kids. But um, as I got older, I realized there's something amazing about cooking. And when you cook and you provide food for other people, uh, they, they like you. <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of a nice thing for you know for a young boy to feel liked for something that he does. Um, and it just so happened that I actually really enjoyed the the process of cooking. There's a lot about cooking that I love. There's a meditative aspect of it. There's a repetition. Um, just like any other skill, you don't really get good at it unless you do a lot of it. And um, I love, I take pride in the fact that even now as an old man, when I'm cutting a brunoise of shallot, I like to make sure that every time I'm doing it, it's a little bit better than the last time I did it. I love that idea of perfection. Um, I always feel like there's something you can learn from every step of the game and, and we can be our own best teachers. Uh, and and as, a, as a cook growing up, I always thought about how can I make this dish a little bit better? How can I make this tomato taste a little bit better? What can I do to elevate this from the last time I made it? Um, and I never thought of that as a career path. Um, I never even considered that being a cook could be a career path. But I, I grew up cooking to, as, for summer jobs um, in high school. I, I, I cooked through college. Um, and every example I had of a, of a chef was either an alcoholic, a drug addict, abusive, not exactly the sorts of things you aspire to be as a young man as you're looking towards your career. Um, but 
I, uh, I soon realized that there actually was, a, there could be a very beautiful career in food. And, and that kind of dovetailed. It was a little bit before the rise of the Food Network and the, the idea of the celebrity chef. And cooking was not something that, or, or food in this country was not something that was taken nearly as seriously as it is now. Um, and I started to go into it and, and really fell in love with the career path of cooking um, and focused on, on, uh, on becoming the best chef that I could be. And along that path, something really misfortunate to a degree, but then in, in, in hindsight, looking back, probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me is I started to get sick. Uh, and I didn't realize that the relationship that I had with food was pretty uh, disjointed. I really had a very good idea what happened when you put food into a pan, but I had very little idea of what happened when you put that food back into your mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that kind of began this, this process that, First, this unraveling of my health, and then slowly, ironically, the thing that was probably at the center of the unraveling of my health became the, 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 the piece that really brought my health back together and got me back on plane. So food um, has been a pretty ma uh, amazing journey for me. I, I um, developed rheumatoid arthritis, which is a chronic inflammatory autoimmune disease. Uh, and my initial uh, relationship with that disease was very conventional in the sense that I thought that I was doing my part. I went to the doctor. The doctor told me what was wrong, gave me a pill. I went home and went back along my business and just did, you know, went about my business. Um, and I didn't really realize that so many of the choices that I was making on a daily basis were impacting the direction of that disease and were directly impacting my illness because we all... We all suffer from something that I call APS. I think everybody here has, is, is a victim of APS, Amazon Prime Syndrome, <laughs> where you, 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 you want to lose 30 pounds tomorrow. Yes. Um, you want to be healthy tomorrow. You want, we want everything immediately. We've been very cultured to have this immediate response. And unfortunately, uh, life doesn't work that way. If you're ill, it was a long and insidious process to become ill, and with lots of steps along the way, you don't just arrive at ill health, and in the same way, you don't just arrive at health. Uh, and I um, have, it's a struggle that I have every day. Uh, I haven't figured it out necessarily. I figured out some things, but I haven't figured it all out. But I know that health is not something that you arrive at. It's just like taking care of your car. If you wanna have a car that lasts a really long time, you have to change the oil regularly. You have to uh, make sure you rotate the tires. You've got to put the best quality gas you can into it. And despite all your best efforts, you still might you know, drive over a, um, a nail on the road and get a flat tire and go off the road. So the best thing we can do is to try to set ourselves up for success. And that means having a very positive relationship with food, um, having an understanding of what, uh, what happens when we eat food, what it, what, when it actually becomes the people that we are. And it's a really personal experience. It's not, there isn't one size fits all for everyone. Um, what works for me will not necessarily work for you. However, what we can do is we can look to the people around us who have, um, have had some successes and see what lessons we can take from them. And that's kind of what I, I, I hope to do as much as I can in my, own, um, in my own life is to be able to share some of the successes that I've had so that I can inspire other people to discover their own successes that they may overlap with mine, but they may be completely different. Um, so, so yeah. That's that's my story um, in a nutshell, and well, we're so uh, and, glad. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Led you to <laughs> this moment, absolutely. Um, and so I know that you do discuss um, quite often the idea of getting to the root cause of illness mm -hmm. and trying to find out what foods will help us individually to heal. Um, so, and I believe that 
Functional medicine is what we refer to it? Yeah, so functional medicine is, is a term that, um, or integrative medicine or holistic medicine um, is used really to describe the idea of treating the body as a system rather than looking at the body in, in isolated verticals. As I mentioned before, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which is, uh, it was described to me when I was diagnosed as being uh, an, an, uh, a dysfunction of the immune system. My immune system was attacking myself. I had actually never even heard of autoimmune dysfunction or autoimmune disease when, when I was diagnosed. I thought arthritis was a disease of the elderly, osteoarthritis. I didn't know anything about it. Um, but what I learned is I kind of became a sick person living with RA. And that's really what, what I was for a long time. I was a sick person living with RA. I thought of RA in the verticals. In the, in, the, in the series of symptoms that were used to diagnose this condition called rheumatoid arthritis. And what I didn't understand, and it took me a long time to understand that, is, is that RA is one presentation of an underlying problem. And oftentimes, other presentations, other sets of symptoms, they could be called ulcerative colitis, they could be called Crohn's, they could be called MS. Uh, they generally have very similar driving factors. Uh, and the idea of causality, of understanding that there's one, pro one problem, like you, your foot hurts because you stepped on a nail, that's, that's a pretty easy uh, A plus B equals C. I stepped on a nail, my foot hurts, the problem is the nail. Functional medicine is more about, well, what were you wearing? Where were you walking? Were you paying attention when you were walking? How did you end up in a position in which you could step on a nail? So looking at like all of those different aspects, the system of the body, and then, okay, I, have a, I, I stepped on a nail, but now what, what's the reaction to stepping on the nail? Let's, we can't just simply take the nail out, problem gone, because now the nail has created a whole series of other problems. We have an infection. Um, it won't heal. We continue to walk on it, so it doesn't heal. So looking at how do we address our behavioral changes? Well, maybe it's time for us to take a break, put our foot up, and really heal. Rather than if you have a tree and the leaves are brown, painting the leaves green and going about your way, look at the root system. Look at the entire, uh, the, 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 look at the soil, look at the whole system. And that's, that's the approach that um, functional medicine takes. And it's integrative, integrative in the sense of understanding there's so much that we've learned through allopathic medicine, which is very good for acute trauma and care. Uh, but it's it's also somewhat incomplete when we look at chronic illness. It's not as good at um, treating chronic illness because often what we do is we try to apply the lessons of acute trauma care to chronic illness, and unfortunately, they don't work so well. So it's looking at the entire system. And a lot of it we don't necessarily understand yet. It's a lot of it is guesswork, too. Um, you know, a lot of it is, 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 well, we don't necessarily have the conclusive uh, double-blind placebo studies to support what we are feeling. Mm -hmm. But we can also learn a lot from what we're feeling. And I think that's what's really important as an individual is to develop a very personal relationship with your own well-being so that you can be in tune with how your body feels. For a really long time, I was very used to feeling terrible. My normalcy, my, my level of normal was looking at life through dirty lenses. And it wasn't until I started to clean those lenses up that I realized that my lenses were dirty. So perspective is really, really important. And, uh, and then, yes, there is, there, the, and there is a growing body of science to support a lot of, um, of, a lot of what we're feeling. But the most important thing as an individual is to really start to be as in tune as you can with how, what it means to feel good. Because I think a lot of us have forgotten that. We've become a, a little disconnected from it. And I, as a yoga teacher, always say, 
I don't think people realize how good they can actually feel. So it's, it's the same. Yeah, same it's that. true. Yeah. So once we have movement, we're putting good foods into our body. All of a sudden we're like, Oh yeah, this is, this is how I should feel all of the time. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And then also, as far as I know, um, you speak to the idea of removing yourself from the label of victim or sick. Um, so I really love to speak to that and just getting on the, well, I have a couple of questions for mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. um, so I do want you to speak to that. Sure. So just moving away from the label of being a victim or being sick. But at the same time, I personally struggle with if I'm saying, oh, maybe this isn't my diagnosis. So I'm mm -hmm. searching for the root cause um, when they're saying I have high blood pressure, say. Well, I'm like, hmm, maybe high blood pressure is because of something else. It's mm -hmm. not a diagnosis. But then at the same time, I'm like, am I avoiding like acceptance of that? So mm -hmm. how do you feel about those two? Yeah, well, things? there's a couple of things there. I mean, symptoms are not problems. Symptoms are messages. Uh, so if you're only treating the message, you're not really addressing what the message is trying to tell you. Right. And I think that that's really important um, to understand that a, a symptom is neither good nor bad, it's information. Mm -hmm. And inflammation is the same thing. We talk a lot about inflammation. Inflammation is information. Inflammation is literally telling you there is a problem. And um, it's really easy, and we have a tendency, and I know I certainly fell into this. I mentioned before, I thought of myself, I'm a sick person. And it took a really long time for me to pass from I'm a sick person to I'm someone that's living with an illness or I have a sickness. And that was a very, very different perspective, a very different shift of mindset for me. Because once I was looking at in the possessive term, I have a sickness, well, I can also let go of the sickness versus I am the sickness. The sickness then is a definition of who I am and I can't let go of that. It's one one and the same. Mm -hmm. And um, when, when I was able to kind of make that separation, that was really the last day that I was sick. And it was the yeah. beginning of getting better because what I was able to do in that was to first visualize myself as not being sick mm -hmm. and then visualize the, the path to getting there and how to manifest not being sick. And, and that took a lot of help. I mean, I wasn't able to do that on my own. Um, but up until then, I had gotten to a point where the idea of being sick, this definition of who I was as a sick person, um, really, it gave me a certain sense of relief. Mm -hmm. There was a, a diagnosis to hang my hat on. I had, um, you know, I had a, an explanation as to who I was. This is why I had an excuse for many, many things. Like this was, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 um, I, uh, uh, I, I couldn't do this or I couldn't do that because I was sick. Right. You know, and so there's, it's, it's really easy. We get, it's a very comfortable place to be when we get into a spot of, of saying, well, this is just who I am. This mm -hmm. is, and rather than understanding, well, there, there are some things that I can do about this and some things I can't. Um, and I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to, I'm going to make every effort, every best effort I can to, um, to overcome this. Absolutely. And, um, one thing I would also love for you to speak to is, just being a, a huge part of your own healing. Mm -hmm. And I know that you practice yoga, um, mindfulness, maybe meditation, and just- Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit from time to time. Oh, we all meditate yeah. when we walk in the park. Um, but just how that has been a healing aspect of your journey. I think that self-care is, is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we often, 
skip that part and project onto other people rather than taking care of ourselves. Yes. And, um, and we outsource our own self-care. And uh, a lot of it is, you know, we, we don't understand that doctor literally means teacher. We can all be our own teacher. We can be our own doctor. So what I was talking about before, that idea of going into the kitchen and cooking, trying to make my brunoise better every time, yes. I'm trying to be my own doctor. And we can teach ourselves more than anyone else can possibly teach us. They might be able to light a fuse, but we become the firecracker. And that's what's really important to really embody that. And being the firecracker means what are the things that I can do on a daily basis, the small things that seem inconsequential, but in their aggregate have the ability to move mountains. And, uh, and that's why you know, we, we often talk about death by a thousand cuts, this idea of, I think in a lot of ways, we're all kind of suffering from a life of paper cuts. We're constantly causing these individual paper cuts to our health, to our well-being, without um, each one seems, seems to be pretty irrelevant, but in, in, their, in their whole, in the sum of all of those paper cuts, we're causing a lot of damage. So if we can kind of flip the script on that and think about how we can empower ourselves, how we can, how we can actually um, embody health by a thousand choices, each one of those little decisions, while they may seem inconsequential on their own, they start to really have massive change. And little things like... Um, I mean, yoga is great because it slows you down. Mm -hmm. It slows you down and it really forces you to be in your body and think about how you are in your body. Uh, and w one of the things I love about yoga is that it really embraces um, or it, it enables us to embrace a very natural pattern of movement that unfortunately we, we've, we've become very disconnected from. We, you know, we, we, are, we are these masters of our environment to our own detriment. Uh, we sit in chairs that are all built at 90 degree angles, but none of us evolved to sit in the position that we're all sitting in right now. Right. <laughs> and one of the great things about yoga is that it reminds us of that and it starts to shift some of our patterns so we can be aware of that. Because believe it or not, you know, I'm sure you've all heard that sitting is the new cancer, sitting is the new smoking, like all of these different things, because we, we are very conditioned to trying to control our environment. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a direct physical impact that it has on our, on our well-being and our body. And yoga is a great way of getting out of that, reminding ourselves, well, this is pretty uncomfortable. I mean, it is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable to sit in, in, a, in a squat for a long period of time for most of us, because we haven't done that since we were babies. Um, but you know, if you, you step outside of, uh, of the Western culture, you'll see that most people actually do socialize, they do uh, cook, they do go to the bathroom, they do give birth all in a squatting, in position, a squatting position because it's the natural way our, our bodies evolved to do those things. And as we became masters of our environment, we moved away from that natural state of, of being. So I, I love the idea of practicing yoga because nobody's good at it. Right. <laughs> um, the same thing with meditation. We all suck at meditation. We're that is terrible. By, that's by definition to meditate means to be bad at meditating, mm -hmm. um, because it's it's extremely difficult to our minds are, are 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 impossible to control. We have to kind of embrace that idea, and it reminds us of our own insignificance too. And I think that's really important. Um, the one thing that we do have dominion over is our own well-being. We have dominion over our bodies for the most part, we can, we can really control our bodies. And uh, yoga is a great reminder of how, um, how, how disconnected we've become from it. So I, I do love these practices that are hard for me. Um, I don't ever expect them to be easy. I think that like anything that is difficult, as you, as you, as you have, once you, once you kind of reach one goal marker, you kind of have to re, you know, raise the post and go a little bit further. And there is, 
There is no arriving. There, you haven't arrived. And it's just like with well-being. You don't, you don't arrive at health. You're That's in a good. constant state of arrival. You're always getting there. You're always getting there. With peaks and valleys, with moments of, of success and moments of failure, and you learn from the failure and pick yourself up and continue moving forward. And yes, and as far as meditation goes, I have so many people who often say to me, oh, I'm just terrible at it. Mm -hmm. But the practice is not being able to clear your mind. Um, the practice is actually recognizing when the thought, when a thought has entered and just bringing yourself back to, oh, coming back to my breath and just celebrating that little success. Um, that is the practice. So, and as we say, it's not a yoga perfect or a mm -hmm. meditation perfect. It's a yoga practice meditation practice so yeah yeah well and also um as far as like the physical activity avid mountain biker mm -hmm. yeah so that's my meditation that is your meditation yep. i love it my husband says the same thing mm -hmm. trail running and mountain biking so definitely a different type of um you have to be very present in mm -hmm. the moment um lots of technical things on those trails out there yeah so how is it a meditative um practice for you yeah i mean it's uh in many ways, I have a friend who's a surfer, and, and, and he says surfing is, like, is, is his perfect meditation because he can't have his phone with him. Mm -hmm. you know, he, can't take, he literally cannot take his phone out in the water to go surfing. And there's a, there's, there's a real sense of, of smallness when you're surfing. You realize that rather you can't fight nature. You have to kind of you have to embrace nature and you have to respect nature because nature is always going to win, particularly when you're surfing. The, the, the ocean is so incredibly powerful mm -hmm. and inexorable. You have to let it win. Um, and in mountain biking, what I love about mountain biking or trail running is that the moment that your mind wanders, you're given a pretty quick reminder that you need to be here. <laughs> so it's, it's a great way of, um, to me, it's more effective than sitting with my mind quietly mm -hmm. yes. because I can always let my mind wander. But when you're, when I'm, when I'm riding my mountain bike, the moment I don't, uh, I don't stay focused in this very, very moment I'm in, I'm flat on my ass, you know, with, with my knees <laughs> scraped open and in a lot of trouble. The other thing I love about it is this, it's this great metaphor for life and that, that hesitate and you will crash. Mm -hmm. Lose momentum and you will fall over. You have to always be going forward. And the greatest, the greatest skill you can learn in mountain biking is that you will go wherever your eyes go. Mm -hmm. So that's no different from when I was sick and decided that I wasn't gonna be sick anymore. I went where my eyes went. You look to where you wanna go. Think about a race car driver when they're going into like the, the third chicane at, at Laguna Seca, they're gonna go where their eyes go. <coughs> if you're driving through the desert in, in Baja in a truck and you're going like 80 miles an hour and you, there's a boulder over here, if you look at the boulder, you're gonna crash into it. Life is just like that. You have to visualize the path of where you wanna go. You have to manifest it and that's where you're going to go and that's how you're gonna have success. And, um, and I love these metaphors. I think it's, uh, particularly for men, it's really easy to, to think about this idea of being on a machine and controlling the machine and then being able to see where you're taking that machine. If you can take that metaphor and then embody that into your own well-being, and think about where do I want to take my health and what direction am I taking my health and then visualize it and take yourself there. Use your eyes, use your metaphorical eyes. And, and sports are a great way of learning that because we have these immediate lessons that generally speaking aren't, um, you know, they aren't fatal when we screw up, but they can be really good reminders of, of, um, of how important it is to continue to, to visualize and move forward. And to move forward, fantastic. And coming back to um, just nourishing through foods and, um, 
with the kitchen and also just gathering around the table. So do you, I know that you cook for Katie quite <laughs> often, um, as she has told us, but do you cook for groups um, in your in your apartment, your home, um, gatherings? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love to cook. I, I love to cook for other folks. Uh, and, and not just the act of cooking, but what I love is that idea of being around a table. Um, I, I often refer to a table as being a community distilled. It's sort of a very small and beautiful uh, microcosm of a greater community. And um, that social aspect of eating is so incredibly important uh, that, you know, like we talk about red wine and, and how there are all these antioxidants and it, it's healthy to drink red wine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is what's really healthy about drinking wine is the fact that it's good grease for conversation. And so it, it helps us socialize, it helps us uh, chat, it helps us exchange ideas to challenge each other. And those are the things that really, um, that, that, that stimulate us, that keep us healthy, healthier longer. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the food is, Food is so much more than fuel. One of the great things that we as humans have and that distinguishes us from other creatures is that um, that the way that we eat, the way that we actually sustain our bodies, not only is it steeped in joy and pleasure because we figure out how to make really delicious things extraordinarily delicious, mm -hmm. but also we socialize around food. So we gather together as a community to eat. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's incredibly important and that's really valuable and it continues to push us forward. Um, and, and it's one of the things I, I love most about, about cooking is that it's something that, that you generally, I mean, there's times for doing it in solitude and there's times that I love cooking for myself and just enjoying a meal that I've cooked for myself individually. But generally speaking, that's something that I wanna share with other people. Uh, and, I, and I love the idea of getting together around the table. Yeah, building those connections, so important. Especially these days when we might feel divided. It's just yeah. bringing everyone together around the table. So. Yeah, and we have a tendency to eat interacting with a device rather than interacting with each other. Absolutely. It's so often that I see families at dinners, they're spending money to be out and together mm -hmm. and connect and then staring at their phones. So we have a rule of phones down. Yeah, <laughs> in my house. So wonderful. Well, I um, w in just a moment, I do want to open up for some Q&A with you all. Um, but I have selfishly a question. OK, um, I have a hard time. I'm trying to stay away from some red meats mm -hmm. um, just because, like I did touch on earlier, I have a little bit of high blood pressure lately. So trying to change some things in my diet, avoid sodium. I'm having a hard time <laughs> getting enough protein and not getting tired. I mean, I never get tired of seafood, mm -hmm. um, but I don't live in a place where it's um, as fresh as yeah. I would like it to be anymore. So just how can I high or get some protein in there just in more salads? I'm tired. Yeah. I'm getting tired. <laughs> I mean, I, I have your cookbook now, so I can well, certainly I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> have lots of ideas well, from that. But. Well, one of the things that I, I like to do is I, I'm I like to look at meat and animal protein as an equal opportunity player on the plate with other other ingredients. Mm -hmm. So rather than, like I'm not a big fan of this whole meatless Monday idea. I would rather see people eat less, comma, better meat. Mm -hmm. So eat smaller quantities, um, integrate it throughout, uh, throughout your meals, but in smaller quantities, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and diversify. I think that's really that's really helpful for a lot of people. Not not only because um, you get different nutrients from different ingredients, but also because it just makes it exciting. 
when you're trying new things. Uh, the number of people that I've that I've cooked for that, that say, oh, I never, I don't like lamb. I've never, I've never liked lamb. And then I cook lamb for them. And they're like, wow, this is extraordinary. I love mm -hmm. this. This is so great. Um, diversify, open yourself up to new things, try new things. Uh, but yeah, th th smaller quantities and integrating as an, as an ingredient throughout. So whether it means making, um, you know, making a big salad that has both raw and cooked vegetables in it, I love to roast lots of vegetables in the evening and make sure that we have leftovers so that when you're having a salad, it's not just raw roughage because there is, there's a lot of goodness in that, mm -hmm. but you're, you're actually not able to capitalize on all the micronutrients in the vegetables when you're just eating them raw. So having a, a balance of cooked and raw, integrating some, some meat into it, maybe you're roasting a chicken. And so you have a little bit of um, chicken leg meat that goes into the salad the next day. Uh, and it might only be, you know, not a whole lot. It might only be an ounce or two of meat that's that's in what you're eating, but you're getting a little bit of that, and so you're getting healthy fat and healthy protein. Yeah, and perhaps I'm just used to so much protein. Maybe yeah. I don't need quite as much. Yeah, <laughs> well, we, we have that. I mean, we're very, we, particularly now that we think of protein as being just so, we need to have protein, lots and lots of protein, and what ends up happening is we tend to, I think we overeat on a lot of the protein, more than we necessarily need. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah. Well, let's open it up to these guys. Mm -hmm. Hi, Jay. Okay, so you said you had rheumatoid arthritis, mm -hmm. and that you found that you Better. So, what actual changes did you make in your sure. diet to move along a healthier path? And I know exercise is extremely important, but on the eating. Yeah. Um, so let's just repeat the question. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 how did I? What were the actual changes I made in, in my diet to help me manage and then eventually overcome rheumatoid arthritis? It's that's a, a really huge question to impact because I didn't really talk about some of the driving factors in, in RA, and I didn't talk about um, a modern diet which I'd love to just talk about for a second because I think that's really important. We, um, we have changed the way we eat from how we evolved to eat, unfortunately. For instance, the human need for refined sugar is zero. We don't eat it. Um, we didn't eat, uh, we only ate saturated fats. We only cooked the saturated fats until the beginning of the 20th century and coronary heart disease basically didn't exist. So we've we've come up with this idea that we should be eating um, we should be eating low fat, and now a lot of these things are obviously we've got, the pendulum swing has gone the opposite direction because we're starting to understand some of the science behind it. That a lot of the science based on the idea of um, of eating a low fat, high carbohydrate diet, which was the foundation of the American food pyramid for the the second half of the of the 20th century, was based on. Um, based on a theory by, um, by Ansel Keys, which was developed in the 1950s, that a, a, a gram of carbohydrates can, um, contains fewer calories than a gram of fat. Well, that, that is true. Um, but when you apply that to a biological system, that's a physical law. And when you apply it to a biological system, something very different happens. Um, so when we eat carbohydrates, uh, we're essentially, they, they, they behave in the body in a very similar way to sugars in that the, the pancreas needs to produce insulin to break it down so that we can convert it into glycogen, which is one of the two fuel sources that our bodies can work on. And we've become very, very dependent on a high carbohydrate diet. Now, it's not to say that carbohydrates are bad because we need carbohydrates and they exist in many forms, but unfortunately, so much of our diet has become based upon very, very simple and refined carbohydrates. Um, 
And when we fill up on a lot of carbohydrates, it doesn't leave a lot of room for protein and for fats and mm -hmm. for roughage and vegetables. But we have a lot of other sources of carbohydrates that we could be tapping into that are really healthy carbohydrates. And those are, those are the, the brassicas, so the Brussels sprouts and the cauliflower and the broccoli and all of those vegetables that we know are really important. And when you combine those with some healthy fats, like some olive oil and maybe even some grass-fed butter or some, some, um, some avocado, we suddenly get much more access to the micronutrients in those vegetables. So the first step for me was understanding uh, there were a lot of things that I was eating, and I wasn't even aware. I thought, oh, I don't eat that much sugar, and I don't eat that. I, I'm not eating a ton of carbohydrates. But once I started actually monitoring what I was eating, I realized I'm actually eating way more than I thought. And the way I did it was pretty simple. I'm not good at... Um, at taking meticulously taking notes and keeping a food journal, but I just took photographs of everything that I was eating. Um, mm. And as I took photographs yeah. of it, then at the end of the day, I just would really quickly before going to bed, I would kind of give myself an assessment and score of one to 10 how I was feeling. And I started to see that there were patterns that when I ate in a certain way, I felt a certain, I felt a certain way. I noticed that my hands were definitely much more swollen when I had a lot of dairy. I noticed that um, I didn't sleep as well when I was eating a ton of carbohydrates and sugar. And so in doing that, I just started to change, make some subtle adjustments. Um, the, 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 at, at the center of all of this uh, is really, for me, when I, when I think of autoimmune dysfunction, um, changing my relationship with food was the single most important factor in helping me start to feel better. I started to lose weight, which was a uh, secondary <laughs> bonus side effect. Uh, it wasn't my objective to get skinny. My objective was to feel better. But I realized that so much went hand in hand that I was overweight as, a, as, uh, as, as part and parcel of being really ill. Um, and as I started to as I started to reduce my inflammatory markers through the food choices I was making, primarily reducing carbohydrates, taking sugar out, taking grains and gluten out, and um, reducing and then eliminating dairy eventually, um, those were the things that really had a dramatic impact. But it wasn't like day to night. It wasn't like, oh, I don't eat this today, then I feel better tomorrow. Um, there were certain things, and there still are for me, there are certain things that are huge triggers. If I eat a lot of dried chilies with oil, and, and particularly if it's not a healthy oil, um, I'm going to feel terrible pretty much immediately. Uh, so, so I understood that there's, like, there, there's some, some foods for me that were direct triggers mm -hmm. and other foods that in, their, in the cumulative effect of eating in a certain way over a longer period of time, um, like for instance, gluten, I, I don't have celiac disease, but I do believe that everyone has gluten intolerance. Every human being has gluten intolerance. Whether or not it presents itself in such an acute fashion that we notice it depends upon many other factors that are going on in our well-being and our health. If you, have, if you think of like your health as, has a re resource number of 100, and uh, you're generally speaking, you're doing pretty well, then you can handle some of those other things, those, those things like gluten that might be a little bit more uh, challenging for you. But if you're dealing with an autoimmune dysfunction and you're, you're tapping out a lot of those resources to deal with chronic inflammation, and then gluten comes along, your body doesn't know how to deal with it. And I know this is a dramatic oversimplification of what's going on in the body, but just to understand that it's, it's almost like if you get a good night's sleep, you can deal with a lot more crap the next day. 
But if you don't get a yeah. good night's sleep, your fuse is going to be really short. You're not going to be able to deal with as much crap the next day. Um, but the specific changes for me were reducing, taking out dairy, taking out gluten, taking out sugar, and reducing the carbohydrates. And those carbohydrates, when I'm talking about carbohydrates, I'm talking specifically about legumes and beans. Because I also took out corn, and I took out all the nightshades. Um, and wow. yeah, I mean, it's essentially a, it's a, it's a paleo diet. And the idea behind that um, is that we as humans shifted the way we ate about 10,000 years ago. Um, it's impossible for us to eat the way we ate 10,000 years ago. And we probably wouldn't, things wouldn't taste very good if we did. <laughs> um, but the, the, for instance, the, the, the grain that exists, the, the wheat that exists now is very different from the wheat that existed 10,000 years ago. In fact, the wheat 10,000 years ago was inedible. But we figured out through hybridization how to make it more palatable, more edible, um, how we're able to actually access the, the, the proteins and, and, uh, and, and the nutrients within, within grains through hybridization. Um, the problem is, is that there was a, there, you know, it's, just, it's an imperfect food. Um, and nightshades are specifically fruits and vegetables from the Americas that um, if you think about them, the way that I like to think of night, when people talk about nightshades as being uh, a challenging, particularly for anyone that has, has autoimmune dysfunction, just think of them as being foods that we have, uh, they're kind of like where grain was 5,000 years ago. They're still on their, we're still trying to influence their evolution to make them more digestible. So those are tomatoes and, and um, peppers and eggplant. And the inflammatory elements in those foods reside in the skin and the seed, because those are the two things that the, the, the plant needs to survive. The seeds are the reprodu reproductive organ of the plant, and the skin is the defense mechanism of the plant. So Mother Nature puts most of the resistance in those areas, because if we, uh, the, for the first line of defense for the, for the eggplant is its skin. So if she makes the skin relatively inflammatory, smart animals will stop eating it, but we're not that smart, so we're gonna keep doing it. <laughs> um, and if she puts the resistant elements in the seed, smart animals are not gonna eat it because the plant won't survive. Um, so we, we figured out uh, how to hybridize a lot of these plants so that, that um, when we consume them, we're not necessarily killing them. Uh, I like, as I, I say this a lot, like food is kind of on this, this spectrum from blueberries to poison ivy. And uh, you eat a blueberry, or a berry to blueberry, <coughs> walks two miles and poops, and it creates a perfect environment for the next blueberry bush to grow. It's a very positive symbiotic relationship. And so as a result, Mother Nature actually wants to entice the bear to eat the blueberry, so she develops a lot of fructose in the blueberry, making it sweet and tasty. She puts a lot of natural antioxidants in it, making the bear feel pretty good when, when, when he or she eats the blueberry. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an exchange there. There's a balance with Mother Nature versus a poison ivy plant. You eat the poison ivy plant, and that plant is at its end. That's it. It doesn't reproduce. And so she knows that if, um, if we eat that plant, the, the, the species is going to eventually become extinct. So the plant develops a very simple and effective defense mechanism to keep us from eating it mm -hmm. through the development of oils that give a very toxic skin reaction to the plant. And as a result, only goats eat poison ivy. <laughs> um, so if you can think about foods in that same sense too, like what are the foods that, and for the, for the, the, the eggplant and the peppers, et cetera, 
when you take the skin off and you take the seeds out, they actually become much more tolerant and you can, you can take advantage of the vitamin C that you'll find in peppers. You'll take advantage of some of the antimicrobial elements that you find in capsaicin so uh, without getting the inflammatory response. Um, but generally speaking, someone who's dealing with inflammation, those are good places to start. And just because you, you are taking this and you're following a, call it a paleo diet, doesn't mean that that's what it's gonna be for the rest of your life. It's a healing process. So as you start to reclaim your relationship with food and your body starts to heal, you may find that you can introduce things back in. And, and one of the things that I found is that, um, for instance, I'm, I'm working on a pilot program with the Department of Gastroenterology at UCSF. And we have 10 people who all have um, moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. So these are 10 folks who have volunteered to be in a program. And for six months, they've been following a food protocol that I put together for them. The, 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 each one of these people, um, there, there's a calpopectin, which, calpopectin, which is the, um, the, an inflammatory marker that they use to measure um, ulcerative colitis. Anyone with a number of 150 or more is considered to have ulcerative colitis. Anyone with 50 or below is considered to either have non-presentation of, of the illness or to be in remission. Each one of these people were between 500 and 1,200 when they went into this. Now, six months later, everyone is below 50 except for one who is at 75. So all of these wow. people are either not presenting ulcerative colitis or they are uh, at the very, 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 very low spectrum of ulcerative colitis. The only change that they've made is either um, personally titrating off of prednisone, which is not going to reduce their, their score, uh, and following a food protocol. So what we're, we're, we're able to surmise from this, or what we hope to <coughs> demonstrate from this, is that there is an immediate and direct correlation to the choices we make on a daily basis with our food <coughs> and how that presents in markers of inflammation, specifically as it pertains to ulcerative colitis. Um, so what, you know, what, what, what I truly do believe is that by changing the relationship that we have with food, we can alter our body's ability to care for itself and our immune system's ability to do what it really does well. But when we put up these obstacles and these roadblocks, it's almost like you know, you're eating great food and at the same time you're eating broken glass. Mm -hmm. So if we can take the broken glass out and just work on eating the great food, we can allow the body to do what it wants because the body craves homeostasis. The body wants to be healthy. Um, and we make a lot of choices on a daily basis, basis that either help the body do what it really wants to do or um, impede the body's ability to do what it wants to do. Sorry, long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what, what about um, like whole grains and ancient grains? Do you feel like those are um, okay? And then also with dairy, is there, um, like if you were in, you know, the countryside in, you know, in Puglia and you, you know, got mozzarella that was mm -hmm. you know, just made from the cow that was, you know, over there, in yeah. the grass-fed cow, is that less inflammatory than, you know, than dairy that we're eating from, you know, Whole Foods or whatever? Not Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and is the is the is the answer. I mean, when it comes to the, those are great questions because they speak to to quality of ingredient, ingredients, provenance, relationship with ingredients. They also speak to something interesting, which we don't think about, which is emotional relationship with food. You're on vacation and you're in Puglia, you're stress levels are lower 
you're in a happy place, you want to enjoy this. So you may actually have the same sort of inflammatory response, but not be as aware of it because all the other inflammatory elements in your life are kind of turned down a little bit. Um, but specifically to the nutritional component of your question, um, ancient grains, for instance, and this is like when we talk about whole grains or we talk about um, wheat, einkorn is one that we talk, that, that we refer to a lot, which is very close to um, it's it's a grain that that or or spelt. Um, you guys have heard of spelt. Uh, it's, it has very 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 small trace elements of gluten, which is gluten is the inflammatory protein. It's a, a lectin, which is the defense mechanism that plants have. Um, uh, spelt and einkorn have very, very, um, very low levels of that. So ancient grains, um, fermented foods, for instance, for fermentation, natural bread, natural leavened bread, you're cultivating bacteria, you're cultivating yeast that starts the, the actually starts the digestive process before we even eat them. So generally speaking, it makes it easier for people to digest ancient grains, for instance. However, if you're dealing with um, any kind of chronic inflammation, uh, it just means that like you're eating a smaller piece of broken glass than a big piece of broken glass, essentially. Um, to the question about dairy, there's a couple of things to unpack with dairy there. Uh, one, if you're in Puglia and you're eating mozzarella, you're probably eating it from buffalo milk. Um, Southern uh, European cows um, specifically buffalo, produce what's called A2 milk. It's, there's two different um, types of milk. There's A1 milk and A2 milk. Nearly all of the milk that we consume um, in the Western world is A1 milk. Uh, most of it is produced from Holsteins, which are super milkers. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a German varietal that has been um, bred over many, many generations to produce a tremendous amount of milk. Um, and are kept in a state of perpetual pregnancy, meaning they go from pregnancy to pregnancy. Um, I was just in, in, in Istanbul, and I met a really fascinating doctor um, who's an oncologist, but he's also, he thinks way outside of the box, and he's done all this research on dairy um, because he has worked with people that are stage four cancer who he's removed stage four colon cancer, removed tumors, and then changed their dietary <laughs> protocols. And he's, he's now been doing this for 10 years and he's watched patients who are five, 10 years cancer free after, um, after surgery because of dietary changes, or he believes largely because of dietary changes. And one of the things that he's found in dairy, he thinks that dairy is, um, one of the greatest, um, uh, um, the, the, one of the greatest problems with people that are dealing with chronic inflammation, specifically because of how we have, um, we, how the dairy has been, been industrialized. So A2 milk, which is, as I said, milk that comes from, from Southern European cows, they're only a few, they're, they're heritage breeds. And the reason that we don't consume as much is because it's much more costly than uh, Holstein uh, milk. It, it does, they don't produce as much milk. They only produce milk, postpartum milk. They don't produce milk while they're pregnant. Um, and as a result, they have much lower levels of the protein I mentioned before, lectin, which is inflammatory. The issue with what he's found with perpetually pregnant cows is that we're, we tend to, we as humans are consuming dairy products, not from postpartum animals, but from, from cows that are pregnant, which means that the hormone levels within the milk 
are completely different. Much higher estrogen levels in, um, in cows that are pregnant than they are in cows that are postpartum. And that disruption is, he believes, and I, I don't know if this has been proven or not, but part of the reason why a lot of um, uh, girls are getting their period earlier, mm -hmm. um, as young as eight or nine years old, that we are consuming as a, as a, as a culture um, worldwide, we're consuming far more estrogen through the dairy products that, that, that we consume than we ever have before. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of different factors. Uh, and I wouldn't under, undervalue that idea of being on vacation in Puglia. Because when you are, and when you are in Puglia and you're relaxed and your, your cortisol levels go down, your body is able to deal with a lot more. And the other factor is that when we look at, um, we look at soil quality across the world, and this, is, this was just recently, um, uh, I just recently saw a study of soil, soil quality um, that the NIH put out. If you look across the world, the United States has some of the most nutrient deficient soil in the world, topsoil at this point. And a lot of that is because of large scale industrial agriculture in the breadbasket of the United States. And again, anecdotally, but if you look at the concentrations of um, autoimmune disease and highest concentrations of cancer in the United States, they're focused around the Mississippi Delta. And the Mississippi is obviously the drainage source for um, the breadbasket of the United States. So we're, we're talking about soil that has largely been um, uh, has has largely been stripped of its nutrient value through monoculture agriculture, where we're growing simply either corn or soy um, or wheat. We're not growing complex agriculture, um, and as a result, we strip out a lot of the micronutrients in the soil, which we need to replenish. We replenish using petrofertilizers. Um, we replenish. We 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 treat the crops using uh, using um, Roundup, which is contains glyphosate. It's an it's an antibiotic. Um, and it's water soluble, so it enters the water table, and it takes 50 years to come out of the water table. So we don't know. I mean, it's again, like it's impossible to say, and I, and I think that you know, it's impossible to point and say this is the cause. This is the root cause of everything. Right. Glyphosate is the root cause of everything. I think that there is. Um, we as humans are are unfortunately in a state in which we're we've become kind of disconnected from our natural environment uh, through technology and through food, and to really right the ship that we're on re really is going to require um, some changes of priorities, like prioritizing our health care, not our sick care, because we live in a world that um, we, we, uh, we really focus on sick care. Health care in this country is not caring for people. As I said last night, JFK said the best time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. It's much more difficult to get up there in the middle of a rainstorm to try to fix the roof and imagine that you know, your sofa's not going to get wet. Um, there's a, a, a wonderful quote by the, the, the poet Wendell Berry that says, we're treated, um, we're, fed by, we're fed by a food industry that cares nothing about our health, only to be treated by a healthcare industry that cares nothing about our food. And the two are, are, are not, are, are, it's, they're incongruous to think of that. So we really need to think about how we care for ourselves and for the next generation who, Frankly, we're all kind of a lost cause to a certain degree, so we need to think about the next generation. We need to think about the future. And uh, well, it's, I mean, it's not, not entirely true, but, uh, but I think it's really important that we should be trying to, as best as we can, set up future generations so that they're not struggling with the same questions that we're, we're struggling with right now. Because hopefully we now have, we, we've figured some of the things out. It's like, oh, wait a second. 
you know what? Smoking does cause cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, we figured that out, right? So now let's start to understand, okay, well maybe having, um, having a very antagonistic relationship with food, not so good for us. Um, maybe, you know, spending our entire lives glued to a device that's interrupting our ability to sleep really well is not so good for us. So how do we moderate some of that? Because it's not a reality to expect that, um, that we can't use our phones or we're not going to watch television, for instance. It's not a reality to expect that we can control all of the food that we eat at all times because all of us travel and there's going to be times when you're on an airplane. There's going to be times when you're, when you're in an airport. There's going to be times when you don't have access to your normal food that you, you feel really good uh, eating. So the best thing that we can do is that when we are within a controllable environment, we do everything in our power to control the environment to the best of our ability. So lots of balance and awareness, mm -hmm. pretty much. So it was easy for me, when you were speaking, it was easy for me to figure out some of my daughter's um, food intolerances because I was listening to her saying, oh, my stomach hurts now mm -hmm. and she's uh, lactose intolerant. But it's harder for me to be aware of what makes me feel good or bad because also I'm there's a lot of information coming at us at all mm -hmm. times. Oh, dairy's bad. This is bad. So I'm, I'm always like, well, does dairy make me feel bad? So mm -hmm. I think your idea of taking pictures of what we're eating and I journal every night. So this would be a great way for us all to think about like, mm -hmm. okay, this is what I ate. This is how I wait. How do I feel? Yeah. So another awareness practice and then balance obviously when you're on vacation mm -hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> so so as you were um sort of studying i think i, I uh, as far as i read you put a, a huge amount of effort into doing research about about how the body works how food works with it and and worked with a, a doc who was also very interested mm -hmm. in, in inflammation how did you get to the point where you said, forget the prednisone, forget the biologics, mm -hmm. let's go with what we have? That, that, that's a that's a gutsy thing to do. Yeah, and it's a scary thing to do to say, forget the bread and zone, let's forget the biologics. And fortunately for me, getting off the biologics, I didn't have a choice because I developed um, bacterial meningitis and it and it basically killed me. Um, and so I couldn't be on the, the, the biological drugs anymore. They were suppressing my immune system so much that I could not be on them. So we kind of had to take a different tack. Um, getting off the prednisone is hard because if you're dealing with acute inflammation, I don't care how much fricking turmeric someone tells you to eat, it's not gonna go away. You know what's gonna work? Prednisone. <laughs> Prednisone is going to help you in that moment, but that again goes speaks to the, the 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 fault in the way that we treat chronic illness because that's using a lesson of 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 acute illness and applying it to chronic illness. Um, so rather than and my grandmother was amazing at things like this. I remember when I was a kid, I would say I have a headache, give me an Advil. My grandmother would say, How much water have you drunk today? And she, she was very much of that old school mentality that, well, if you're not drinking enough water and you're not sleeping enough, or you haven't exercised, or you haven't done this, or you haven't eaten well, those are the reasons why you have a headache. Don't take, a, don't take an Advil, don't take a Tylenol, um, rather look at, change your behavior, deal with the pain right now because it's a lesson. It's God or it's the universe telling you that, shame on you for not taking care of yourself and learn, and learn the lesson. Um, 
and I think that, you know, for me, I, I had to start to shift from that. I had to shift away from that and understand that, okay, there's a process. And I was very lucky in that, in that as you said, I, I had a wonderful doctor who's a very good friend of mine now. And he did something that a lot of doctors wouldn't do, which is he said, you are going to feel better. You are going to get better if you continue to take care of yourself and you follow this path. And as we go along this path, you may have to moderate it. You know, maybe right now, I mean, I, I remember for a long time, I was following his protocol when it came to, came to food and I still wasn't feeling any better. And then he's like, well, let's, let's really journal what you're eating. And I was telling him, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And like, I thought I was, I thought I was doing a really good job. And then I realized I was eating a ton of corn chips and I was eating a lot of, of, of hummus because, you know, hummus is healthy. It's plant-based. Um, and I was eating rice. I was eating brown rice. Because, well, whole grain rice should be better for you. That's what I've been told. That's what everyone believes. And it wasn't until we started to actually look at my bloods that when I did my fasting glucose the next morning, my blood, um, my blood sugar was always elevated if I'd eaten rice or carbohydrates the day before. There was a direct correlation. My fasting glucose would be much higher and pre-diabetic pre high. So... Um, you know, I, I, I changed that and then check my, you know, and then I, I would, I'd do three days of just eating vegetables and a little bit of fish and meat. And then suddenly my, my fasting glucose would be normal. So I was able to see, wow, there's a direct, my body is struggling to break these foods down and turn them into nutrients that I can use. And having somebody with me saying, Hey, stick on this path, keep doing it. You're going to feel better. I don't know how much better you're going to feel. It's up to you, but you're going to feel better. Um, that was incredibly helpful. Because the idea that we all can just kind of Horatio Alger ourselves out of illness is not, is not fair and accurate. You don't, just, you don't just get there on your own. It really does um, involve uh, recruiting a team and a community. And if, you have, if, if your team and your community is not supportive of it, then find a new team and a new community. That's on you. You got to figure that out. My rheumatologist, every time I went to him and said, hey, do you think we can look at my diet? Does, do you think changing my diet is going to affect how you feel? His response was, well, there's no conclusive evidence to demonstrate a correlation between autoimmune disease and, uh, and nightshades or a specific dietary protocol. But if it makes you feel better to think that there is, go ahead and do it. I have no problem with you going gluten-free. Fast forward six years later, that same rheumatologist was emailing me, asking me for dietary advice for his patients mm -hmm. because they were clamoring for it. So they're, they're, find a team that supports you in, in, in your goals. Also find a team that's flexible and nimble because, as I said, there is no one-size-fits-all. There is no right answer for everything. Um, and that's what I really loved about working with the doctor that I worked with. He didn't have his ego online saying, do what I say and you're going to be great. He said, let's try this. I'm not going to, I'm just going to be there as a coach. You got to do the work. And if this doesn't work, then let's try something else. But it wasn't like I have the answers and just do what I say and you're going to be fine. And I think that, that that to me was really reassuring because I, it, was a, it was the first time I ever had someone that was like, listen, we're going to do this together. There's a path. There's a way forward. And what I found is that as I started to, to feel better, and there's this idea of contagion, which I love, which is positive health contagion. Illness is contagious, but health is way more contagious. When you start to feel better, when I started to feel better, I just wanted to feel more better. I wanted more of that. And that motivated me. And then I saw the people around me making changes. I saw my sous chef quit smoking. I saw my, my chef de cuisine change the way he was eating. 
my assistant, she, she was 26 years old. She went to the doctor. Her doctor told her her triglycerides were elevated, that she had high cholesterol and, um, and prescribed statins. For mm -hmm. She came to me and she showed me her numbers. And I was like, Julie, you don't need statins. You're 26 years old. You're, you're, you're healthy. You're athletic. Let's just change your diet. And she started doing the same things that I was doing. She went back six months later and her doctor said, statins are working, your cholesterol is great. And right. she's like, I haven't taken a single one. So, you know, finding a, a community is really, really important. And that's one of the great things about, you know, one of the very positive things about social media and the interconnected world that we're in now is that it makes it easier to tap into a community. Inspiration is hugely important. I, I continue to be, and I was certainly in my journey, tremendously inspired by other people who had been on their own path. And in seeing the successes of people like Dr. Terry Walls, who has completely reversed MS through, through uh, dietary changes, was hugely, hugely inspirational to me. And also, she became a resource of, of information, a wealth of information. Um, so the shift to me was a, was a, was a mind shift. Conventional medicine wasn't getting me any healthier. In fact, it was getting me sicker. You know, I went from I, I went from having acute attacks, acute flare-ups, and feeling pretty crappy all the time, to losing most of the acute flare-ups, but feeling really crappy all the time, and then having moments where my health was just literally falling off a cliff. And to me, it was really indicative of the way that I was treating the illness. The what we were doing wasn't working. So I, I you know, at that point, I felt like if I don't change, I'm not going to be around. So what's, what's the risk? And the great thing about food is that it is a zero risk approach to treating illness. There is no downside and there is, there's no illness that does not benefit from a positive relationship with food. It doesn't matter if it's terminal cancer or if it's a fricking hangnail, having a good relationship with food is going to enable your body to do the best job it can to fight whatever issue it's dealing with. So away from the Amazon Prime syndrome. Get, yeah, you got away away from the APS. The zone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got to Do we have time for one more question? I think. So. Mm -hmm. How about allergy? Like my husband has like when you mentioned prednisone, he's mm -hmm. like on it, and he's like it makes me irritable. And I'm like, oh, and like yeah, oh. yeah, <laughs> roid rage. <laughs> he's got these allergies. He like so, and then goes into asthma, and he can't breathe. His like lung capacity is like forty six percent last week, and he's like crazy, and he has to take prednisone because. Yeah. But then, like, what happened? He took it several months ago, and several months ago, and it's like he didn't want to take it, but it's like I'm dying here. So then, after he's off the prednisone, tell me about allergies. Mm -hmm. that, that, which is inflammation, right? Yeah. Well, aller allergies, seasonal allergies, um, asthma. The, the, those are also those are very common and often misunderstood presentations of autoimmune dysfunction. So asthma is actually an autoimmune disease. It is. Yes. Um, now, whether when we're, we're dealing with the symptoms of asthma doesn't mean that it's it's there's a specific cause and you can just root out that cause and everything will be fine. But asthma and seasonal, seasonal allergies, um, generally speaking, can can be improved through through a healthier. I mean, I hate using this term because we, it's overused, but a healthier gut biome, a healthier balance of of bacteria in 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 the body. So the humans, there, there are over 350 trillion cells of bacteria in, in and on our body. And um, the, the microbiome is the term that we use to describe that relationship between human and bacteria. We're more bacterial than we are human. And that microbiome begins at our nose and begins in our eyes and ends in our butt. That's kind of the microbiome, all of that. 
And sinuses and nasal breathing, this is where it all sort of begins for, for a lot of us. Um, and obviously when we develop inflammation in the, in the, in the, in, in the sinuses and, our, and we start to dry that out, we're limiting our body's first defense. Um, that's why part of the reason why people get sick on airplanes very easily is there's, there's a large presence of, of pathogens and we're in a very, very dry environment. And so our nasal passages, which is our first defensive immune, uh, for, for our, first, our immune system's first defense, um, is compromised. So we're much more susceptible to developing a respiratory infection, getting sick right away. Um, asthma is, is one of those things that, you know, because it is chronic inflammation, uh, respiratory cr chronic inflammation, foods that drive inflammation, increase more inflammation, increase an inflammatory response in the body um, are just going to exacerbate that. So reducing that. And I, um, I, I, right after I started to get better, I decided I needed a challenge that was harder than, than overcoming RA. So I had always wanted to do this mountain bike race in Costa Rica called La Ruta. It's a three-day um, mountain bike race that goes from one side of, of Costa Rica to the other, all off-road, 29,000 feet of climbing. It's ridiculously hard, and it's considered, it's literally like riding a bicycle from sea level to the top of Mount Everest, but through mud. Wow. And it's considered to be the hardest adventure mountain bike race in the world. Um, so I thought, what better thing to do than to do the, to, than to do La Ruta? So this is a, this is a year after getting off of all of my medication, and my brother, being the lunatic that he is, is like, I'm doing it with you. <laughs> and then another friend of mine said, I'm doing it with you, and we put together a team of five people. And my friend Lucas, um, uh, who's now retired, but he was a professional cyclist, he rode for the United Healthcare Cycling Team. Um, and he said, I'm doing this too. And Lucas had suffered from asthma his whole life. Pro cyclist, had been on, on, on an inhaler through his entire cycling career. Um, and in the six months leading up to this, because he's like, I really, I know that diet has a huge impact. And so we looked at what he was eating and created a new food protocol for him created a dietary plan for him that, that, was, um, that reduced some of the, 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 the most common um, uh, culprits of inflammation that we talked about earlier, sugar and, and uh, nightshades and grains and carbohydrates. And he did the whole race without ever once, once touching his inhaler. Um, he ended up retiring the next year and he's like, you know, if I had known mm. 10 years ago what I know now, my cycling career would have been completely different. The fact that he was able to compete at the, at, at the, on the world stage, racing in Europe, racing in, 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 um, in the most competitive, competitive environment, doing that with a compromised immune system, if he had been able to do that with a strong immune system. So he was able to see immediately an immediate change, not only in how he felt, but also in his, you know, he didn't, he didn't need his, his inhaler any longer um, and continues to not need his inhaler now seven years later. Yeah, and he was able to completely um, treat his asthma in the same way that I treated my rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so, you know, it's, the, prob the problem is, is that again, it, when you're having an attack, you still need that, you either, you're either gonna really suffer, and, and I didn't go cold turkey off of any of my medication by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it was it was titrating in in concert with caring for my health. The good news was is caring for my health through the food made it easier to titrate off of the medication. Yeah. 
that Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what can I expect here? <laughs> and can I get my money back if it doesn't work? Um, uh, so, so I had a pretty remarkable experience in that um, when I started working with my doctor, he said, I think in six months you're going to feel better. You're going to feel a little better. And for the first six months of working together and making all these changes, I didn't feel at all better. In fact, I felt worse for, quite a, for, for, for a period of time. And I think that had I not had the support of, of my team, my family, my doctor, I would, have, I would have quit. Like, this is BS. This doesn't work. I'm not feeling any better. Um, but he was like a coach. He was like, you're going to get there. You're going to get there. You're going to feel better. It's going to take six months. You're going to feel better. Trust me. Stick, stick it out. But like, you know, the minute that I fell off the wagon or I cheated or I didn't, wasn't doing something, he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you cannot. You're going to sabotage your ability to actually feel better. And so it, things that I was like, what's the big deal? I had a little ice cream last night. It's not a big deal. Or like, God forbid, I ate some hummus. You know, but he was like, he treated eating hummus, me eating hummus, like I was taking strychnine. Um, but an amazing thing happened. Once I was able to, I was able to say, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to look at hummus like strychnine. I'm going to just follow things. I'm going to only do exactly what you say. And I'm only going to do, and I'm going to give you my feedback and then we're going to change you know, this isn't working for me or this is, and we're going to adapt. And then I'm going to continue to follow the protocol that we design. And, um, six months, literally almost to the day after we started, after I really focused on it, I had a remarkable moment where for years and years and years, when I would wake up in the morning, I mean, it was horrible. I would wake up in the morning and just to give you like an idea of what my life was like, I postponed going to bed for as long as I could. I would stay up as late as I possibly could because I knew that as soon as I got into bed, as soon as I stopped moving, my whole body was just gonna start hurting. As long as I was moving around, I was distracting myself enough not to be in pain. So I would kind of fart around the apartment until like two in the morning, avoiding going to sleep. Because the other thing I knew is that as soon as I got in bed and I did manage to fall asleep, two hours later I was gonna wake up with the bed completely soaked from night sweats. So I slept with a stack of towels next to the bed. And I would have to get up and then put a towel down and lie back in bed. And then the next morning when I would finally wake up, I would dread getting out of bed because the minute I swung my legs off the bed, my feet felt like somebody hit the bones with a hammer. So even just to like touch the floor like that was incredible neuropathy. The pain was horrific. And as soon as I sat upright, Headache, hand swelling, felt terrible. And then I would have to sit on the edge of the bed like this and breathe. And then I would get out of bed and I would shuffle like an old man to my to like a, a lounge chair that I had that was relatively comfortable. And then I'd collapse into the lounge chair and I would just sit there for like 15 or 20 minutes. And then I would get up, summon all my energy and shuffle to the shower and take a hot shower. And by this point, it was like 9.30 or 10 in the morning. And that's usually when I would then go to the restaurant. And so from like seven o'clock in the morning to 9.30 in the morning, it was a two and a half hour process of suffering to just jumpstart my day. And how old were you at this point? In my early 30s. 30s. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I also accepted that that's what my life was gonna be like. like this, is the, this is the hand that I had been dealt and this is what it was gonna be like for me. So that was what my life was like for years and years and years from like my mid 20s to, to my mid 30s really. For 10 years. 
And um, I had a moment six months after we changed everything where I got out of bed and not even, I wasn't even thinking about it. Like I swung my legs out of bed, I started walking down the stairs and I realized halfway down the stairs that I wasn't walking like a, an old man. I wasn't taking it one step, one step, one step. I was actually walking down the stairs, step, 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 like a normal human being. And suddenly I was like, holy shit. <laughs> this is what it feels like not to be in pain. I had forgotten what it was like not to be in pain. So it took, it took six months, but that was like a, that was a, a, there was an actual moment and it was halfway down a spiral staircase and I remember it to this day and I'll never forget it, where suddenly I was like, somebody just took my glasses off and cleaned the lenses. lenses. Now I'm looking at life the way I should be. And, um, and the remarkable thing is that from that day forward, I have only progressed. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've certainly had moments of, of peaks and valleys of like, oh, well, this has been a little bit of a struggle or, um, but I, I've never gone back into having, um, flare ups. I've never had a flare up. Um, I have never slept like slumped back into that, uh, state of chronic inflammation. Um, so it took me six months to, but, and they seemed like six really long months in the process, but in hindsight, looking at it, it's like drop in the bucket. Like honestly, drop in the bucket. And what's incredible about that, and to go back to this pilot program at UCSF, is that the program is off, it's, it's finished, we finished it two months ago, and, um, and the woman who's running the, the, the chair of, of, um, of gastroenterology at UCSF, who's running the program, um, she's checked back in, and she's checked back in with all of the, all 10 members of this pilot program, they're all still doing it. They're yeah. like, are you kidding? I'm not changing this. This is great. And the, and the, what's happened now is that just like anything, I mean, we're just so amazing at, at adapting to whatever our normal is. So if our normal is that the, the, the one thing about the human body is that it's remarkably good at doing whatever we ask it to do. So if we ask it to sit on the couch and eat potato chips, it gets really good at sitting on the couch and eating mm -hmm. potato chips. <laughs> but if we ask the human body to move, to, to, to laugh, to, uh, to work, to push itself, it gets really good at doing those things. And once we get good at doing something, we fall into this routine that's really, that, that becomes comfortable. And, um, and, and if we can create, uh, my friend, his therapist told him, and he, he shared this with me, and I love this, I love this, uh, this, this line. He said, you know, a groove is a lot like a rut. So it's all about perspective and de deciding which you're in. And if you're in a groove of taking care of yourself, then it's easy to stay in that groove. So these folks that are coming out of six months of now titrating off their prednisone, feeling normal again for the first time, they're in a groove and they're, it's easy for them to stay in that groove. But when you look at it as a rut and you're like, oh, and I can't eat that and I can't eat that. And I, like, I used to love donuts and fried chicken just as much as anyone else. But now when I look at donuts and fried chicken, I'm not even tempted anymore mm -hmm. because I know like, how it makes me feel. So they, they served a place in my life at one point. Um, but now I love to embrace the foods that actually make me feel good. So this idea of, of loving food that love us back and understanding that so many of the things that we think of comfort food actually make us pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. So if we can shift that and create new comfort foods that make us really feel good, like what does it mean to feel comfortable? It means to actually feel good in your body, not to feel bloated means to like to wake up in the morning with energy, not to be achy, not to have a headache, not to feel like you have digestive issues all the time, um, not to feel like we're fighting ourselves, 
that's what it means to, to, to have a comfortable relationship with our food and embrace the foods that help us feel that way. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Seamus, yeah. so much for your insightful conversation. Um, and thank you all. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day.